Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Howdy folks, good morning. How are y'all doing? This fine, beautiful morning. Trust that all of you had an amazing time at Family Weekend. Thank you so much for turning out for that. I heard there were some 220 uh, uh, participants and over, I think, 25 uh, different activities. I went for two. I went for Popia and a beach party. Uh, and, and I'm so glad we have now uh, you know, a whole squad of people that can make sourdough bread. And so uh, we will activate your expertise at some point uh, because we need breakfast, huh? Yes, and so uh, all this to say, uh, thank you so much for joining that. Uh, you know, as a team, we're exploring uh, making our family weekend part of our ongoing rhythm uh, as a church. And I think uh, something beautiful uh, about that, and uh, it's re- really related uh, to the topic that I have for you this morning. Uh, but before I get moving, how many of you have watched Top Gun? Yeah, baby. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Let me just say, that movie came out in 1986. 1986, that was before I was born. I only had two LDs growing up in my home. It was Top Gun and Land Before Time. And Top Gun, uh, by default, had become my favorite movie. And, uh, and I know I'm not supposed to talk movies here, but it's, yeah, it's, it's probably one of the best. You know, I had a profound spiritual experience uh, when I was watching Top Gun one, one day. Uh, you know, God really convicted me of pride while watching a movie. You know, there was this line that goes like, Maverick, you know, your body's writing, your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. And, when, when the line came up, you know, I just felt so convicted of my own pride. And so that movie is both like, you know, personal and also a very spiritual experience for me. And so, yes, I'm sorry to take up precious sermon time. Uh, yes, so on, on membership, folks, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, spending some time with you uh, downstairs, those of you who are first-time members. I want to encourage you to come ready with questions, come ready to interact. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be just a presentation, but really, you know, I think it's a time where we can interact, where you can ask questions about the church, our vision, get to know more about me, and I would love to get to know more about you as well. And on membership, I want to encourage uh, all of y'all who are members in our church to uh, sign up for membership. Uh, you know, if you don't, Tim will have to call you and text you one by one. And uh, if Tim has to do that, then he wouldn't have time for the youth. And when he doesn't have the time for the youth, their spiritual lives are at stake. Do you want the youth spiritual lives to be at stake? No. So sign up for membership, folks. Save the fellow some time. <laughs> and all that good stuff. Well, folks, circling back to Family Weekend, you know, I can't help but be moved by uh, all of the uh, images and videos that I saw on Instagram. It's a really beautiful thing to see many of you step out of your usual social circles uh, and to interact with people that you don't usually interact with. And there were so many intergenerational groups. And seeing many of you, uh, you know, open up you know, your personal sacred space to host people that you don't know, I think that's something really beautiful, something really powerful, and something that we have to draw attention to. And I can't help but think of uh, that line from Max Lucado when he says that long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. And in, very, in, in, very, in, in a very real sense, this act of hosting people or welcoming people into our own space, of having a meal together, is part of the faithful tradition that we have inherited as the people of God. And that rich biblical tradition is the practice of hospitality. 
hospitality. And this is the subject uh, that, that we're going to delve into this morning. This act, this practice, this tradition of hospitality that is so central to our faith. It's not just a thing that we practice on occasion, but it very much defines our faith. It's integral to our faith, and I'll love to expound on that a bit further. Now, many of us this week were uh, just shocked and torn apart by the news of yet another school shooting in the U.S. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to be said there, and, and I think for some of us, you know, it feels very distant and far away, but nevertheless, the news is still jarring, still uh, deeply, you know, uh, uh, unsettling and uncomfortable to just uh, read news report after news report of families lost, of uh, children uh, who, who died, and of parents who would, you know, not have that experience of tucking in their children in bed again. Now, much of the focus now uh, you know, with the news is on the need for better gun control laws. But correspondingly, perhaps, you know, there should be give, attention given, I, I reckon, to white, the widespread social isolation that we see, particularly in persons with mental disorders. Uh, there are a bunch of research and statistics, uh, but it shows that statistically, um, a lot of these uh, men and boys uh, who uh, would commit these heinous acts, they actually suffer from some form of psychiatric illness or disorders, and they're often socially isolated as individuals. And though I, I believe that there should be tremendous attention given to gun reform laws, that we ought to, as the body of Christ, even consider, you know, how can we better step into the space where many of these well, uh, children and teenagers who suffer psychiatrically are socially isolated, how can we be the people of God in response to this? Of course, you know, in, in light of the news, I just can't help but think, you know, if there were a community, a space of belonging, of welcome, of acceptance, of healing, that he could have gone to, would the outcome be any different? And I think in many ways, hospitality is in response to the hostility that we see in our culture. Hospitality is not just something that we extend to friends or to people that we enjoy. But in, very, in, in a very real way, hospitality is to be subversive, is to be a place of healing, of reconciliation, welcome, in a time of polarization. And so I'm going to be asking and trying to answer a few questions this morning, and that is this. What is hospitality, biblically? What is a biblical vision of hospitality? Next, why it matters? Why does hospitality matter for all who call themselves followers of Jesus? And why are we to capture a robust vision for it? The last is this, how can we begin to put this into practice in our lives in a very real and tangible way? Now, to start off, I'd like to ask us a really odd question. Are you ready? And that is this, uh, with a show of hands, how many of you came to faith uh, in the city? How many of you came to faith in the city? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you came to faith in the city? All right. Now, as a church, in 2020, we baptized three people. In 2021, we baptized nobody. And in 2022, early this year, we baptized eight persons. Now, I'd like to leave you with a question, and the question is this. How many baptisms should a church of our size and demographic see in a given year? How many baptisms should we see as a church in a given year? 
Now, I certainly don't want to reduce the work of the church to just the amount of conversions that we see or the number of baptisms that we do each year. But I would be remiss to not point out that that is what we are fundamentally called to do as a church, as the people of God in the world, to see the lost come home and to see them fully given to God. There's evidence that is expressed through the rite of baptism. There are many things, folks, that I'd like to put it to you that our church does well. You know, we do community initiatives well. We do some justice initiatives. We do it well. We run a pretty, you know, okay service, if I can say so myself. We do many things well. And, you know, in some sense, maybe even better than other churches. But this, folks, is an area that we aren't doing so well in. Seeing the lost come home. Seeing people baptized. Now, this may be super unsettling to hear, right? Because I suspect that some of you may have come from church traditions where numbers have been used and abused. Evangelism feels like a cohesive thing. Perhaps you were given like individual KPIs that you had to met, that you meet, and your leader like, you know, kept you to task and asked you, like, where's the soul? Are you bringing people to church? And so to consider numbers this morning is a really uncomfortable question. And yet at the same time we read in the book of Acts, Right? We read of the 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. We read of 5,000 in Acts 4. And if we can be honest for a second, folks, numbers matter because people matter. Now, if we can be honest again, a lot of church growth that we see in our world today is just Christians who have moved from one church to another. First world church funding strategy has been reduced to where we get people who are discontent about other churches, excited about our vision, our programs, our way, where some churches have better facilities, better worship, better kids program, and then people will come. And for the most part, a lot of church planting, especially in urban cities like ours, is actually church swapping. Now, I'm not saying that this is bad. Many of you have come here from other church environments as evidenced by the hand-raising thing. I'm not saying that this is something bad or something to be discouraged. I found that many find their faith renewed and refreshed and revived when they move church environments. Needs change, preferences change, and this is all a part and parcel of life. I'm not saying that it is bad or something to be discouraged. But what I'm saying this morning is that there is something better. And that's when the multitudes who are far from God are reconciled with him through conversion and through baptism. They hear the good news of the gospel and the church doesn't go through transfer but conversion. I want to humbly submit to you this morning that there can be and there is to be many more conversion and baptisms in and through our community. I don't know if you agree with that. You agree with that? Thank you. Now, we are then led to ask the question, what does evangelism look like in a city like ours, in a time like ours, how are we then to bring the lost home? How are we then to see that baptism number inch up year on year? What does it look like for us to evangelize in our world today? Is it passing out a false spiritual laws tract? Is it inviting a friend to church and hoping that the pastor doesn't screw it up? Sometimes you all do that to me. You all are like, hey, my friend is here. He's not safe, so pet, pet. Do a good job. Is it passing out Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis books? Maybe. Is it a Christian concert or play with a message interwoven in between? 
Is it an apologetics event? Is it a microphone on the street? Now, a lot of us cringe at some of these examples because in our world and our time today, they often seem tone deaf and out of touch with reality. But what if, folks, evangelism in our time, in our world today, could look as simple as having a neighbor over for a meal? A gentle prophetic word for a coworker, caring for someone in the midst of grief and pain, being willing to actively listen, or living with such overflowing love for the other that there can be only one explanation that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and his spirit is at work within you. Now I want to make the case today that hospitality can be, could be, the most crucial and potent spiritual practice that we can put into our life today to extend and advance the kingdom of God. Which passing year, our culture feels and becomes increasingly post-Christian. People seem hostile to the gospel, hostile to the idea of a God. Yet this is nothing new because Jesus himself faced anger and antagonism in his world and his culture. Now we are led to the question, how did Jesus overcome that? Simple. We read of Jesus eating and drinking with the lost. In doing so, he set this practice in motion. The practice is called hospitality. Folks, let me level with you this morning. Few of you here today will be able to preach like Pastor Janice. Few of you will be able to do so. Few of you will be able to belt it out like Therese. Few of you will be able to express gifts on a public stage. But I'd like to put it to you this morning that all of you, every single one of you, has infinite potential to show and extend hospitality to the other, the love of Christ beyond the walls of this hall. Now, folks, when we typically think of being missional as a people, we think of being sent out to a distant land, to a distant town, to unreached people groups, different countries, different parts of the city. But I'd like to give you a different perspective and definition of mission this morning, and that is this. Mission is not just being sent out, but it's also the act of welcoming someone in. One of the most powerful ways to be sent to mission is to invite people to sit with you. That is hospitality. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning, this call to hospitality. As always, I'd like to read a couple of passages of Scripture. Would you join me in reading the Word of the Lord? Reading this morning from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Hear the Word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was too short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Reading also from 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the word of the Lord. My sermon title this morning is this, Radically Ordinary Hospitality. Radically Ordinary Hospitality. And I love those descriptors because hospitality is, is indeed ordinary. We think of hospitality, sometimes we have these images of a lavish, you know, opulent, ostentatious, ostentatious kind of feast. You know, it looks so grand. But hospitality can be as simple as a home-cooked meal, as willing to listen, as offering a hand to help. But hospitality is also radical. In our culture where we are taught to find our own tribe, surround ourselves with people who make us better, help us achieve our goals or reinforce our views. You know, if we can be honest with ourselves, there can be an inherent narcissism in our social groups, in our social circles, if we were to think about it. More often than not, you know, the people that we hang out with are the people that remind ourselves of us. There's an inherent narcissism at play. And therefore, hospitality can be a radical practice because it is extending love, welcome belonging to someone who is different. Radically ordinary hospitality. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here as our honored guest. We extend hospitality to you, living God. And Spirit, we know that you are moving in our midst even now. You are bringing to mind things that we can adjust and shift in our lives. You're bringing illumination to the words of scripture. You're moving in our hearts and causing us to want to be more like you. You're beckoning us into a deeper place of intimacy. We recognize the work that you're doing in our midst even now. And we welcome you. We welcome the work of the living God, the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, I ask that even as we dive into the words of Scripture, may your voice be present and loud in the ear of every hearer. May your words come through far above the noise of our culture, far above even my words, God. May your voice and your words be so clear to all hearers. God, I thank you that in this exercise, it's not a time where I impress people research or stir minds, but it's a time where we yield to you, living God, to your renewing work within us. So Spirit of God, we yield to you this morning in a fresh new way. Come and have your way in this place, in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Now when we think of hospitality, I'm sure we can think of a few occasions uh, in our life where we have experienced extravagant hospitality. I remember I was on a missions trip to Haiti. I went there a couple of times uh, in my younger days and we were staying in this uh, pastor's house. Uh, he hosted us. He didn't know us. We had just come from uh, the U.S. And one morning, you know, as I was waking up, you know, I woke up to the sound of a bull being dragged into the compound. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had bull before, but uh, it is something. And so, uh, you know, he brought the bull in, and from what I was told then, uh, it cost him up to a month's worth of uh, his usual income. And he brought a bull in as a gift to our team, and he uh, then, you know, slaughtered the bull. We did not see it, uh, but we had bull for lunch 
we had bull for dinner, and then the next morning for breakfast, we had bull intestine soup. And let me tell you, they did not waste a single part of that bowl. Uh, there was stuff in there that I could not identify, but uh, nevertheless, there was stuff. Uh, but his hospitality did not stop there. You know. This was a pastor who went above and beyond. He gave up his own bedroom to our team, even with our request of, not, of him not needing to do so, he insisted. And so some of us slept on his bed. He drove us from town to town everywhere. He gave his entire day, all his time to us. And that uh, weekend when we were with his church uh, for communion Sunday, instead of their usual drink, uh, he went and uh, you know, went out and bought Coca-Cola for communion. Now it seems a bit odd, but Coca-Cola uh, in that town was the most expensive drink you could buy. And so in a way to honor us and to honor the sacraments, he bought the most expensive drink. I know some of you are gonna think we should switch our communion drink to Coca-Cola. Uh, dream on folks, dream on. <laughs> now, hospitality, radically ordinary hospitality. I also remember that when I was new to this church, a really friendly usher invited me uh, to her home to hang out with her friends. I was new, you know, I had a really, you know, um, nasty face and nobody really wanted to talk to me, but this usher went out of her way to welcome me and said, hey, come join me in my home. I'm having a little gathering, my friends are coming. And so I went there, ate together with a friend, uh, friends, and they welcomed me. And long, long story short, you know, 12 years in, I'm pastoring the church. Uh, that usher's name was Amy, by the way. And so, <laughs> We could chalk it off to biblical hospitality or Amy going after what she wanted. Uh, is she coming out? No. <laughs> now, hospitality undoubtedly means different things to different people. We want to spend some time this morning zoning in on the biblical idea, vision, or call hospitality. Now, the Greek word that is used for hospitality in the Bible is an absolutely beautiful word. It's, it's, a, it's a compound word. And it's this beautiful construction of words. The Greek word is the word philoxenia. And it's a compound word combining of the word philos, which is a word meaning friend or love for friend. And xenos, that word meaning foreigner or stranger. Rather than fear of the other, hospitality is love for the other. It's this compound word that, you know, if we were to uh, look at it you know, in a very literal sense, it literally means love for stranger, love for the other. If we know what xenophobia is, it is a fear of strangers. Hospitality then is the love of strangers. Now, most of us, us when we think of hospitality, we think of a great experience or those annoying people with boundless social energy always wanting to have people over all the time. But what is talked about here, hospitality, it isn't a lavish party that you throw, or it's a personality type for some. This is a biblical command to love others. And by definition, it is precisely about a love for stranger, a love for the other. Now the word stranger is a catch-all word that could mean people who are unfamiliar to us, people who are different from us, they behave differently, people who have different social economic status, people who don't hang out in usual places, people of different race, or it could even mean people who are opposed to us, strangers, the other. 
Matt Chandler uh, defines hospitality as such. It's expressing the welcome of God to all through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving of food, shelter, and relationship. John Mark Comer says this, it is to show benevolence or kindness to those outside of our circle. Now, Joshua Jibb is a New Testament scholar who wrote this book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. And he writes this, hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. While hospitality often uses the basic necessities of life, such as the protection of one's home and the offer of food, drink, conversation, clothing, the primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. The practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who were previously either alienated at enmity or simply unknown to one another. And so if we were to distill what we just read, here we see that hospitality is about primarily creating an environment that is safe, that is welcoming. And through a safe space, through food, drink, conversation, shelter, the idea is that in doing so, we would see a reformation of identity. Those who were once strange, far-off, alienated entity get converted into that of guest and friend. Person who was once identified as a stranger, someone far off and different, true hospitality is now a guest, a person treated with honor instead of contempt. One author describes what, what this environment is. It is a portal of welcome. Portal of welcome. Imagine that in our lives we can you know, create these portals of welcome, of belonging, and see strangers turn to friends. Now we see this personified and expressed through the person and ministry of Jesus. And that is what we just read earlier in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now there's a Sunday school song that goes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Now it's a really cute song and the usual pictorial depictions look really cute as well. I have this picture of Zacchaeus. It's from a Sunday school book. And so you see, you know, little Zacchaeus on a branch and Jesus going, hi Zacchaeus, come down, hi. Zacchaeus will be up on tree hiding, right? It looks like a really funny and cute image. Now the moral of this story that we just read isn't that Jesus loves really short people. Although he does, he does. And though the depictions and songs may be cute, folks, uh, it is far from cute uh, for the listeners, for the audience in that day. Far from being trivial, for many who were witnessing this moment in time, it was deeply unsettling, uncomfortable, and disruptive to the status quo. It wasn't just a cute story, but in many ways it was subversive to the culture of that day. Now here's why. First off, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The Bible tells us this, that he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. These are the two things that the biblical author wanted us to notice about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and he had a lot of money. Now, just a bit of backdrop, Israel then was occupied by the Romans and tax collectors were essentially Jewish men who worked for the Romans by enforcing exorbitant tax on their own people. They were seen as you know, a fellow men who had sold out their countrymen and are now working for 
the oppressors. They were seen as notorious as people who jumped on the opportunity and wouldn't stop short of betraying their own kind, their own people. Now, they were also known to be notoriously corrupt because of the way they made their money. The way they made their money was essentially this way. For example, Rome you know, imposed a 50% tax on the Jewish people. The tax collector would then come and say, hey, your tax is now 70%, and they will make the difference. Uh, and that was how you know, they amassed wealth and became uh, really rich in that day. And so we see the contrast here. The Jewish people then were poor, oppressed, and suffering. But yet the tax collectors, who were too Jewish, were wealthy and enjoying favor and the protection of the Romans. Now you can't even begin to imagine how hated and loathed they were by the larger society. It will be of interest for you to know that in Jesus' day, the two lowest rungs on the moral level ladder were that of tax collectors and prostitutes. They were seen as moral scum, if, if I could use the word. And they were seem completely untouchable, they're seen as absolutely evil. Now, this story is often lost on us because we don't look at a person from IRAS or MOF with that same level of disdain. And so we have to you know, then perform a mental exercise, right? Now, just take a moment and consider this. In your view, who is at the bottom of the moral ladder where you are concerned? Who to you is a person who is deplorable an absolute moral scum, evil. Could be a terrorist, could be a certain politician, could be a convicted criminal. Now, with that person in mind, think of Jesus going to that person's house and sharing a meal with that person, having a drink with that person, just loving on that person. How does that make you feel? Angry, scared, confused for a little bit. Now that was what and how the people of the day felt in that moment. Angry, scared, and confused. They didn't know what was happening. Now the second reason why this story was so unsettling was also this, that Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. Bible tells us this, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Some translations goes, I must eat at your house. Now, we must understand that in that day, in that context, meals meant more in the society than they do in ours. New Testament scholar Scott Barkey writes this, it will be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the first century. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to eat. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person became a ceremony richly, richly symbolic of friendship and the mercy and unity. Betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone who, with who one had shared a table with was viewed as unacceptable. On the other hand, when persons were strange, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So getting around a table then was so important that there was a prescribed ritual for how they can prepare to eat, how they are to prepare to host. Right? The host would always have to extend gracious hospitality to their guests. The host would have to wash the feet of his guests. Uh, kisses were exchanged uh, before the meals were had, and so... Yeah, don't, do not expect that in my house. And the head of the guest, sorry to disappoint, the head of the guest 
was to be anointed with perfume oil. There was an entire ritual prescribed to this because of the immense weight that was attributed to this act. It wasn't just a casual, hey, just limp day and catch up over a chap. No, it was a deeply sacred, personal, intimate thing. The host who was often a Pharisee would be very selective then about what they ate and who they ate with because dining together created such a deep bond and was of utmost importance. Anthropologist Mary Douglas uh, writes this uh, in a book about uh, meals and she describes meals in that day as boundary markers. Right, meals in that day often are demarcated and marked boundaries between different levels of intimacy and acceptance. She writes this, that the Pharisees regarded their tables at home as surrogates for the Lord's altar in the temple of Jerusalem and therefore strove to maintain in their households and among their eating companions the state of ritual purity required of priests in temple service. The Pharisees longed for the time when all of Israel would live in such a state of holiness they believe that Israel's identity and blessed future dependent on it. Now, sorry, I, I, I said that those from Mary Douglas is not, it's from a commentary. My apologies, need to get my citations right. Now, distilling again what I just read, right? This would mean that no Gentile, okay, back in the day, with regards to the temple worship, no Gentile was allowed in the temple. No one with deformities, no one with infirmities, no sinner was allowed into the temple. And so we read this line that the tables at home were surrogates for the Lord's altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And so now by extension, this applies to your home, to your table. It is to be something kept sacred, kept holy, kept undefiled, kept pure. You are to be selective about what you eat, but also who you eat with. You cannot be seen dining, creating space for someone who was different, who was alienated, who was sinful, wasn't right with the Lord, you couldn't do such a thing because your table was to be kept sacred and holy. And so every meal then served as a reminder of who was out and who was in, who was clean and who was impure, who belonged and who didn't. And that's why we read this line further in text that says this, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Everyone saw this as inappropriate, as unkosher, as punk rock, as avant-garde. I don't think I'm using that rightly. Anyway. Folks, this was utterly inconceivable in Jesus' day for a religious person to be at all associated with a sinner, much less a tax collector. But here we see that Jesus broke the cultural mold of his day. And read on further in Luke's gospel that it defined his ministry because for Jesus, meals weren't a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. It was not a way to keep people out, but to invite people in. And God invites Zacchaeus who was in a tree, who was looking with interest, longing and observation he invites him down into a place of intimacy. In verse 9 in the text, we read this, that today salvation has come to this house, to Zacchaeus' house. Now, did it mean that Zacchaeus got saved right as Jesus crossed the threshold of his home? Then on a spiritual level, he was justified and sanctified. I don't think so, uh, at least in my reading. I read it, read it as this, that once Zacchaeus 
was far off, he was excluded, excommunicated from grace, love, and the fellowship of the saints of the household of God. But now through Jesus Christ, he has been brought back to the table through Jesus' loving welcome. Now we don't read much about Zacchaeus through the rest of the gospel, but church history tells us this, that Zacchaeus would go on to become a bishop. God will take this notorious sinner and make him a significant leader in the church. Instead of taking from the people of God, he would go on to lead them. Instead of a tax collector, he was now called a son of Abraham. Hospitality, an environment of welcome, belonging, that leads to a reformation of identity. Here's another picture of Zacchaeus, this one less cute. This picture we see that this approval of the crowd with the welcoming love of Jesus. But we also see Jesus with his hand outstretched towards Zacchaeus for posture of welcome and invitation. It was said that the entire ministry of Jesus is appropriately, appropriately captured in the phrase divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner. Now, if you were to trace the hospitality of Jesus through Luke's gospel, you'll find that hospitality wasn't one of Jesus' evangelism strategy. It was the strategy. Read Luke chapter 4. Jesus' opening manifesto of the kingdom of God. One translator translates this as this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to preach Release for the captives and sight for the blind and to give release to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's welcome. In Luke 5, he eats with sinners. It's called a glutton and drunken. In Luke 10, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is someone showing hospitality to a person of a different cultural group. Luke 14 is the feast invitation. Here Jesus is talking about invitation, not for those who deserve it, but for all. Luke 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story of a father seeking after his lost son, creating a space of hospitality and welcome for his return. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, this man too is a son of Abraham through hospitality. He is deserving of inclusion. And Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, the two on the road to Emmaus who were in doubt and disarray had a revelation of the living God of Jesus Christ over a meal. Now being hospitable is so important to God that Paul lists it out as a necessary trait for any man who desired to be an elder, a leader in a local congregation. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Now, I've heard of leaders being removed for heresy, for adultery, for doing funny business with money, but I've never heard of a pastor being removed for not being hospitable. Here's the point. All through the New Testament, we are not just encouraged to practice hospitality, we are commanded to do it. We are commanded to practice hospitality because that is what Jesus did. And if we are to follow in his way faithfully, that is what we are called to do also. Hospitality, folks, isn't just inviting your friends over for a meal. It is reaching out beyond the boundary lines that divide us be it social, economic, political, race, or religion. It is the primary way that the gospel spread in the first century. 
from a few hundred people in the upper room to over half of the Roman Empire. And they did this under the threat, constant threat of persecution with no legal protection, with no political power. The gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century spread from one home to the other, from one table to another, from one meal to another. Now the problem with us sometimes, folks, okay, maybe not your problem, it's my problem, is that sometimes I read the Bible as though I'm at the center of the story. I read as though I'm a Jew, you know, and if I was alive that day, I would be one of the 12, maybe the 72, but you know, in that inner circle. But that's not who we are in the biblical narrative. Do you know who we are in the biblical narrative? We're not the Jews, we're not the disciples. We're the Philistines. We're the bow-worshipping Canaanite. We're the Gentile, the heathen, who had no right to the covenant promises of God. The Old Testament wasn't even written primarily to you. Rather than being good people that Jesus would have chosen, the Bible tells us this, that we are enemies of God. Dead in our sin, we hate God in our nature. We wouldn't be the people cheering Jesus on, we would be the ones crucifying him. Ephesians 2.12 says this, that remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Folks, we are way worse off than we realize. We are way further than God than we can comprehend. But this is what makes the ministry of Jesus so extraordinary. It's the lengths that he went to to reconcile us back to him. He has crossed every boundary line imaginable to bring us back to him. We would be, have been the ones that the Jewish community treated with contempt and suspicion, but now we too have been brought in. We have a seat at this table. Your salvation is an act of hospitality. The gospel is the hospitality of God freely extended to us. Joshua Jibb, a scholar, writes this, that God's hospitality is extended to his lost broken, needy, and often stigmatized people. This divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus, the divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, and strangers, and thereby draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. And so when we understand the actual teachings of the gospel, we realize the wonder of what Jesus has done to create hospitable places through his life, ministry, and death on the cross. And how he has extended it to an enemy like you and me. We realize that hospitality lies at the heart of our faith. Loving the stranger is at the heart of the gospel. It is what we have received and now what we are called to express. And so in closing, I'd like to answer the final question, and that is this. How are we to practice hospitality? How are we to practice hospitality? There are many examples, there are many ways that we can begin. I'd like to draw your attention to this verse that we've read earlier in Luke's Gospel. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we have to understand that in that day, 
right, these gospels were primarily recited. There was a rich oral tradition. And so when you heard this phrase, for the Son of Man came, right, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, your ears were immediately peak, and you, it will be called to attention because, hey, that phrase, that term was used earlier in Luke's gospel. It was a repeat of an earlier phrase in Luke chapter 7. Now, it said that there are three ways that the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. Mark chapter 10, it says this, the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke chapter 19. And Luke chapter 7, verse 34 says this, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. New Testament scholar Tim Chester says that the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. But the third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? How did he come to serve? He came eating and drinking. Now, shared meals played a vital role in the ministry and mission of Jesus. Meals were a sign of his abounding grace and welcome and love to the sinner. In the ministry of Jesus, meals represented something greater. They were tangible expressions of his grace. They were not just symbols, but they were an expression of his love and welcome. In the Gospel of Luke, there were over 50 references to Jesus and food. In the Gospel of Matthew, it totals over 90 references. There's something about the use of food, folks. Yeah. Particularly getting around the table, having a meal, that is a big deal to Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples about his forthcoming death, what was that all about? He didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. Luke's gospel is full of stories of Jesus eating people. I have the whole list up. Luke 5, Jesus eats tax collectors. Luke 7, he was anointed during a meal. Luke 9, he feeds the 5,000. Skipping down, Luke 19, Jesus invites himself over the dinner of Zacchaeus. Luke 22, the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples in Maus, and then later eats fish, fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Robert Carries concludes this, that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> Tons of eating references, folks. Now, I do want to be careful and not reduce the church and its mission to simply meals and eating. But I do want to make a case this morning and argue that meals should be an integral and significant part of our shared life together. They represent the meaning of mission. More than represent it though, they embody and act, and act that mission. Now, more than lowering the bar of what mission is, it in fact raises the bar of what your meals can be. Think about it. We only have one service a week for you to bring your friends to. But on an average, if you don't do IF, you have 21 meals a, a week. <laughs> Imagine the possibilities, folks. If you can choose to be missional with at least half of those meals. Mike Brand, missiologist, says this, that if you take the mountains and meals of the Bible, it is a very short book. <laughs> In a world of competing church models and strategies, Jesus employed one practice over all others, sharing a meal with people. Grace, mission, and community are never enacted best through programs and propaganda, but rather through the equality and acceptance experience at the common table. May our lives never be too busy to live this out. Now, I've realized in my life that we are never too sinful for Jesus to use, but we can be too busy. We can. 
we can be too busy. In closing, um, that title, Radically Ordinary Hospitality, spoiler, I did not think of it. It came from a book. Uh, it came from a book, and this book is by far one of the, the most remarkable books I've read uh, in recent years, and it's a book that uh, is titled The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's written by author Rosero Butterfield. Now, I'd like to give you a bit of bio about who Rosero Butterfield was and why hospitality has been so integral to her faith. Rosario Butterfield was a tenured professor with a speci speciality in postmodern critical theory and literature. Just a bunch of uh, fancy words put together. Uh, she would describe herself then as a far-left, radical lesbian feminist. She was in an active relationship then. And at a point uh, where you know, she experienced hospitality, she was writing a book about how basically Bible-believing Christians were the absolute worst for society and there were sociopaths. And part of her research was that she had to meet actual Bible-believing Christians for her research. The story goes that uh, she wrote an editorial on the New York paper that was a criticism, a scathing indictment on a Christian men's conference, Promise Keepers. And it was a scathing tear-down piece. And then you know, the mail began to pour in, right? She began to receive letters from all sides. There were a bunch of letters that were obvious fan mails, like, hey, you go, go. And then the other kind of mail which was like, hate mail, like tearing her down, like what are you saying, what are you doing, this is not true. And then one day, the story goes, she gets a, a letter from a local pastor from a really conservative reformed church. The pastor wrote to her graciously, without menace, acknowledges some aspects of truth in her writing, and offers a thoughtful response. And then he ends the letter with inviting her over for a meal to further discuss these ideas. Now, the, in her book, she writes that you no, know, she was really hesitant and uh, she was inclined to decline that invitation. But then she thought, hey, this is a perfect opportunity to get up close with a Christian person for my book. And she thought of, uh, she said, like, you know, this pastor was essentially my free unpaid research assistant. And so she went over for a meal. And to her total disbelief, she was stunned by the level of grace and warmth she experienced. The pastor understood that she had some certain chosen dietary preferences and catered to what she would want to eat. They understood that she cared deeply about the environment and so they were really conscious about the use of electricity in the, in the, uh, in, in the home. And then they sat and talked with her, hearing her many opinions and reservations about faith. And over time, her defenses began to melt away. And what ends up happening was that she would go back regularly. She would go back again and again and again and again. And she started to come for Bible study, started to go to church with the pastor. And today, now she's married to a reformed Presbyterian pastor. She's a foster parent. She runs a Christian commune out of her house. Radically ordinary hospitality. A place of welcome that leads to the reformation of identity. Now she writes this in a book about hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They take their own sin seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors they seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes 
with a house key. I have some final call to actions for you guys to consider as we close out this message. The first is this, in light of what we have, we have heard, is to prayerfully consider, to prayerfully consider, is there a Zacchaeus in your life that you can extend hospitality to? Perhaps it is to make it into a rhythm. Once a month, you and your spouse, family members, to get together and say, God, who are you placing on a heart to reach out, to show grace and hospitality to? Who is the other in my life that I can show your love to? The next is this, is to make meals a priority. The Bible over and over again talks about the holiness of eating together. It's good, it's pleasing, it's beautiful. Max Lucado says this, something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the back of heads. Around the table, you see the expression of faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the table, there is time to talk. So I implore you folks to make time to eat together with your family. Make family dinners a sacred tradition. To eat together as a life group. To make that part of your life group routine and rhythm. To make time to eat with people who are different from you. To extend hospitality. The last call is this, is to seek out the other. Who is the other? Someone different. Someone new. It could be someone near. A neighbor. Jesus said that the second most important commandment in all of the law was to love your neighbor as yourself. And we usually generalize the neighbor to mean anybody or everybody. But what if Jesus meant our actual neighbor? A person who lived on our street, in our block, in our condo. What if, it, what if he has intended for them to be the primary recipients of our hospitality? And so coming back to that first question, how many baptisms can a church like ours see in a given year? Honestly, not a lot. If our primary expression of mission is the Sunday gathering, once a week, coming together, hearing a talk, singing, seeking God together, I don't think a lot. But if we all capture a vision for this, our homes as outposts, for the kingdom of God, our table as a place of welcome, our meals as, in pl- as a place where we extend grace, love, I think we can see many more strangers turn into friends. The alienated brought home, the lost found. Final quote, I know, so many quotes. Alan Hirsch says this, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. So that's my vision for all of you. Let us eat our way into the kingdom of God. Let us eat our way into the kingdom of God. In Revelation, Jesus says this, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Let's take a moment to consider these words. That the creator of all the universe, all of the cosmos, the giver of life, wants to step into our messiness our brokenness and pain, and to have a meal with us, no matter where we're at or what we have done. Jesus wants to sit at a table with us and offer his welcome, his grace. So, how then are we not to do the same for others, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to everyone in between? Jesus' hospitality was more than opening up one's home. Think about it, Jesus did not even have a home. 
Jesus' hospitality was more about the opening of one's heart than the opening of one's home. He had no home of his own, but yet everyone found their home in him. That is the biblical vision of hospitality. So folks, let us do this. Let us eat our way in the kingdom of God. Let us build portals of welcome. Let us see the lost come home. Can we stand? Amen, amen. Folks, hospitality is more than hosting. It's a willingness to listen, to accept, to love, to treat the other with honor and respect. It's a refusal to allow lines that once divide us to divide us any longer. Now, over the last couple of months, uh, several people have said this statement to me, and uh, it's just an experience that they've had in church over the last couple of years that I'd like to draw attention to. Many of them uh, have, have said, you know, I, I sit uh, in church on a Sunday, and every Sunday, I will sit next to someone that I do not know. Or every Sunday, within my circle, my bubble, there's definitely a person that I've not met before and not had a conversation with. And my suspicion is that it is the same today. That there are people around you that you have not spoken to. That you do not know their story, you do not know what, you know, uh, they're, they're working through, what they're contending for, what they're seeking God for, what their needs are this day. And I thought, hey, as a way to just inch toward this vision of practicing radically hospi- ordinary hospitality, I know it's a mouthful, as a way to inch towards this vision, why not let us practice hospitality in this given moment? It says that we are to continue to love our brothers and sisters and to not forget to practice hospitality, to extend hospitality to the stranger. And let's take that first step. Let us begin by loving our brothers and sisters. And so, hey, there's no song to hype you up. I'm not going to give a chargey little thing. I want to invite you right now to just look around you. You can do a little circle, you can spin. Look around you. Is there someone you have not spoken to before? Someone that you have not spent time getting to know? Someone that you have not prayed together with? And I want you to pair up or go into groups of three and just get to know each other. Just say, hey, what's your name? What do you do? And how can I pray for you? And let's spend this time loving on one another, extending grace, welcome, and hospitality to each other. And so this is going to get a little messy. Have you done your little circle? Have you identified your person? Beautiful. All right. So let's do this. Let's pair up, get into groups of three. Extend grace, welcome. Pray together.